Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. This week, I am excited to highlight a fraud fighter who I just recently got to know and got to know her because she really put herself out there on LinkedIn and I've admired her tenacity, but her humility and willingness to provide value to the fraud community online, as well as her willingness to learn and educate about fraud. And so I asked Meredith McCleary to join me on Fraudology today for two reasons. The first reason being that I don't think I've actually talked to anyone who specifically worked in the mortgage industry for fraud prevention. Frank McKenna and I have talked about it a little bit because when we talked about the auto lending study that came out by his company Point Predictive, there were definitely some through lines to the mortgage industry and Frank McKenna did work in that area of fraud prevention for quite a while before going on into other areas. So we've talked about it, touched on it, and I think even like when Alexander Hall first came, he talked about deed transfers and how to seal a house, which was crazy to me. So I wanted to learn more about the mortgage industry and what types of fraud they see and how they define fraud and what they're looking for and what it looks like. And that was really fascinating. And then the other reason I wanted Meredith to come on is because she has something in common with unfortunately a lot of other fraud fighters right now and that is that she was recently laid off and you'll get to hear Meredith's story about how it impacted her she had been at the same company for over nine years and didn't really see it coming and I think a lot of people can relate as well as empathize with that and like I said I've been impressed by her vulnerability and her desire to take action and provide value as she's looking for a new position. And so I wanted her to talk a little bit about that and any advice she has for other people who are in a similar boat as her or for hiring managers and companies that are hiring. Because, I mean, I haven't heard many horror stories from her, but I've heard stories from other people who definitely feel like they're one of many, but unfortunately they are. And so, you know, ways to stand out and how things are going. And I know for a fact that because of some of the things Meredith has done on LinkedIn, she has been reached out to by hiring managers asking her to apply for their positions. That makes you stand out so much more than applying to a job blind. Really looking forward to you hearing about this. I also recommend if you are looking for a role in the fraud industry, last Thursday's episode, I really dove into some tips and strategies and suggestions that I have, as well as that I've heard from a lot of hiring managers who will say something like, oh, I wish more candidates would do X, or I wish they would do this on their resume, or they would add that. And so I kind of compiled a list of that and provided suggestions on, you know, deciding what positions and what companies to apply to and and what to do there. 
as well as resume tips and how to make your resume stand out, especially if you were one of several people in a similar role as you at the same company being laid off. Chances are a lot of you are applying for the same position now. So finding a way to stand out above the crowd is important. And then lastly, I shared some additional tips for utilizing LinkedIn in addition to what Meredith and I talk about this week. So Highly recommend that if you are, if you've been laid off, if your coworkers have been laid off and you're worried about job security, if you are just looking for something bigger and better and more opportunities, whatever that may be. I know that there are a lot of you, so that is why that episode exists. So I highly recommend going back and listening to that after you listen to this interview with Meredith. As I mentioned, Meredith has been in the mortgage industry for over nine years. She started out in quality assurance and audit and anti-money laundering and moved her way up to fraud investigator and just absolutely loved it. She was given the nickname Eagle Eye by coworkers, being able to really spot those details that no one else will notice. There's one story I could not figure out where she was going. You'll hear it in a minute about, you know, color of a pen or a specific pen being used for a signature and how she was able to tie that back to fraud. So it's super fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to you getting to know more about Meredith as well as the mortgage industry and the fraud sector within it. And also what can be done and maybe just getting other tips and hearing from someone else who has been laid off recently as a lot of people are just feeling a lot of uncertainty. So with that, I will put a link to Meredith's LinkedIn and profile in the show notes. And I am looking forward to hearing what you think of my conversation with Meredith McCleary. It is my privilege to welcome Meredith McCleary to Fraudology. Welcome, Meredith. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're so welcome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, not only because I always enjoy talking to fellow frontbiters and learning from them because we all have different experiences, but also because really I've been very impressed with your approach to, you know, your current chapter and and we'll dive into all of that in a little bit, but the best place to get started so that other people can learn more about you is how did you get started in fraud? Absolutely. So I got started in fraud actually by working, it was in 2012, so just about 10 years experience. I was in grad school and I was doing a part-time internship and I needed a part-time job. And most people, if you talk to them that work in the mortgage industry, will tell you that they kind of just fall into the mortgage industry, just kind of (laughs) happen. Uh And that's exactly what happened with me. I needed a job and I knew somebody that had an opening and and I kind of went in that way. And I worked as a a coordinator in my first couple of years. Actually, when my internship ended, I needed a full-time job. So they asked me to hop on full-time and I did that. Worked my way up into a management position after several years and started working in software technology, QC, admin, sort of, I ran the auditing program actually for our software auditing program for our team. And about six months into that position, I went to my manager and said, I'm running out of things to do. So what could I do (laughs) other than this? And they decided to train me as a QC analyst where I would review files post-closing to make sure that our underwriting teams, closing teams, everybody was following guidelines just as they should and that the files were okay. And it was while I was doing that, I started finding little things that appeared off to me. And 
I would bring these to my management's attention or my team lead's attention and just say, what is this? What am I seeing? And why, why is it like this? Because this doesn't seem right. And enough times I did that. <laughs> they actually encouraged me and said, you are finding things that people who have been doing this for 20 years haven't been finding. And enough time went on, they actually started calling me eagle eye. So that kind of caught on. And, you know, that was that was pretty fun because every time I found something, I, I would feel this. It may sound silly to some, but not to anybody who's listening to this podcast that I would feel this like fire in my mm-hmm. belly. I would get really excited. And of course, it's fraud is terrible, but I would be like, oh, I got something. Yeah. <laughs> It, and they call that the fraud high, which I don't know if that's like appropriate or not. There's probably a better term for it. But I think you're right. Anyone who's been in fraud fighting as a practitioner and has identified that in their company, whatever that looks like, there is this bit of, haha, I caught you. And it's also like similar to people who do puzzles, right? It's you're figuring it out and you find something and you found the needle in the haystack. It's a good Absolutely. feeling. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. So when you were in QC or the quality control piece and you were identifying some of those things with your eagle eyes, I love the nicknames that people outside of fraud give to those of us in fraud. I mean, not all of them, but some of them, because, you know, they'll identify, I don't know, and now I'm planking on some of them, but I certainly have heard a lot inside companies. But what would be an example of something that you would find on a mortgage that was already closed and everyone had done everything, but then you're just looking through it quickly and you'd be like, hmm, why is this that way and that way? What would be an example in that role that kind of helped you start identifying what you weren't sure was fraud, but then you started to realize, oh, that's fraud. Absolutely. So one thing I remember, I don't think I'll ever forget this. This was like my first, I guess, big break, you could say, where I was reviewing an application where a borrower worked for a very small company. And it was actually a somewhat similar company. I don't know if it was another mortgage company. It was a very small lending institution where only three or four people worked there. And I was reviewing, we do a, a verification of employment before you close on your mortgage. And it's It's just the business going back and making sure you are like making what you say you're making money-wise. You actually work there, that sort of thing. And as I was reviewing this, the manager had filled it out, said this person has worked here for X amount of years, filled in the salary information and signed it at the bottom. The, I noticed one thing that the pen he used, the, the pen he used was a different color than the rest of the application or whatever it was that he was filling out. And then I notated that. And then I remember going through and reviewing her asset statements. And she happened to include the page of her asset statement that showed the checks that she had written, one to the electric company, one to her rent or whatever. And one of those was actually to the same person who signed her written verification of employment. And it Why was would a, you be writing a check to your boss. employer, right? Your boss. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And it was for like three or $4,000. It was yeah. the amount. So that in combination with several other instances, there were several other things in the file that made it questionable. Her pay stubs were seemed off. Her W-2 seemed off, things like that. And what we ultimately came to in the end was that more than likely this person, she was paying this person to fill out the paperwork for her because (sighs) we have, and actually, you know, the position I referenced at the beginning where I started out as a coordinator, that's actually what I would do is we would then take the files that we audited, the coordinator would send those verifications back out to the employer to make sure 
the information that we received at the time we received it was in fact accurate or not. And that was sent out and they came back and said, we don't know who signed this. This person has never worked for the company. Oh, wow. We don't know who he is. And so that was ultimately how we kind of figured out, okay, she probably had a friend fill it out and she paid him a large lump sum to fill it out for her. And we found that proof in the asset statements. The fact that she <laughs> provided a copy of that check or was it an actual check that she wrote or was it like her bank account where it said who the check was for? It was a copy of the actual check. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. And I could cover your checks. People. You can't, yeah, can't make this stuff up, I guess. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I think we, sometimes I appreciate, I don't want to say dumb fraudsters because, <laughs> but like people who don't know what we're looking for or who aren't trying hard because A, they're easier to identify and B, it's just, it kind of gives us some comic relief sometimes. But the pen in a different color, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure where you were going with that because I would think they probably did that on purpose because I would think, oh, it was somebody else that they just had a different pen than the person who filled out the application. So, but was that abnormal? Sorry. And you know what? I may not have tied that back. I actually noticed the same pen, the check that that was filled out. Ah, got it. It was like a gel pen or something, you know. Yeah, just something different than like a, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's so wow. And you weren't even in the fraud department at the time, but you were identifying these things. Yes. And it was little things like that that kept happening. And I was working on, I worked amongst several senior analysts and things like this. And that's not to say none of them were oh, right. great because they certainly were great at what they were doing. But it was a, a nice vote of confidence for my management team to tell me that. And so I kind of took that and ran with it. And that's when I, I started looking into what I can do to make myself better in this space and do this full time because this is what really gets me going and what makes me happy. And That's what I wanted to do. And that's when I learned about the certified fraud examiner. I got my certification in that. And then when the time came, I did a really, really great mentorship with the senior VP of the special investigations unit at my company and was able to get a position on his team when when the time came and when the opportunity opened up. And, and I worked there for a little over a year. And then that's kind of when my world came tumbling down. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> what were you uh, going to graduate school for? So actually, I, I've learned two things that I, I did both my bachelor's and my master's degree and neither have anything to do anything with what I'm doing now, which is totally okay. I actually studied leadership and ministry, which was a part of my life. I was certain I wanted to go in that direction. And after my internship, I decided I didn't really want to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm still on the hook for <laughs> right for the loans, right? <laughs> I might as well complete what I'm doing. And that actually helped me move into the management position within mm, yeah. a mortgage company. They they told me, they said, because you got your master's, we want to move you here. And so I don't, I don't regret anything. Everything is taking me to where I am today. But yeah, nothing has anything to do with what I'm doing. Well, I'm always fascinated by that, right? What we plan to do and then how fraud kind of just hooks us in and takes us away from that. I mean, I didn't finish college and have been open about that. And I don't see it as a good thing, but I also don't see it as a bad thing either. It was just, you know, what needed to happen, but I was an education major and then with a emphasis on sociology. And yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of that can tie back to fraud, right? Human behavior and all of that. 
I just recently had a fraud fighter reach out to me. And when I looked at her profile to see accept her tonight, I noticed that she'd been a microbiologist for like 10 (laughs) years before now working for a very major company in fraud. And I was like, I'm so fascinated by that. Or there's another person in fraud fighting more on the vendor side, but someone who's very passionate about learning about fraud, who was an NFL player who I've gotten to know well lately. So Yeah, that's why I asked what you were planning on doing and then what, because fraud does have a way of just kind of presenting itself. Not a lot of people under know that it's a career or that it's possible or anything else. And then we fall into it. It does make it harder when people reach out to me and say, hey, I want to get into fraud because I don't always know the right answers. But that is a topic I hope to cover later on in another episode. Absolutely. And so I think we kind of cover this a little bit, just kind of quickly. What was it about fraud that made you say, you know what, this is the career I want rather than being a minister or in in that line? So I was once watching, I'm a crazy reality TV show junkie. So oh, you and I have that in common. Yes. <laughs> love it. And I was watching a, an, an episode once of Project Runway, the fashion, fashion show. Yeah. And there was a designer that kind of got up there and she was pleading her case because she was on the chopping block when she she had said, this is my oxygen. This is what makes me going and this is what keeps me going every day. And when I think about all the jobs that I've had from once I was out of college until now, this is what gets me the most excited. And I know it kind of alluded to it earlier. Fraud is a really awful thing. And I, I hate that it happens, but it's something I found that I feel like I'm, I'm good at identifying, but also I'm so detail oriented. I'm such a details person. And that was one of the things I found the most success in was these little tiny details that I was catching. Yeah. And so I, I thought this is what keeps me going every day. This is this is what I really love to do and value and I hope to be able to keep it going. Well, and I think that there's something to be said about we as fraud fighters, I think on a whole would be fine having to find another career if there wasn't fraud perpetrated. The problem is it's not going away. It's only getting more so. And so there is a need on behalf of companies and customers and so many different other types of businesses and others for people who have that eye for detail, who love to solve the puzzle and will keep going down the rabbit trail until they find an answer. You know, I think that curiosity, that tenacity, all of those things make a good front fighter, but also your gut. And it sounds like you would often have a gut feeling and then go look for facts and data to back that up or to challenge it. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. So going into when you were really focused on mortgage fraud, you know, and you were within the mortgage, you worked for the same company within mortgages for over nine years, as you mentioned. But when you were really focused on the fraud piece and the special investigations unit, what types of fraud did you encounter? So... There were basically a lot, two, two pieces of fraud that we really found working on the, on the side of mortgages. And that would be fraud for profit or fraud for property. Hmm. Fraud for property actually is typically involves some sort of material misrepresentation or an omission of information with the intent to deceive in order to get what they want. And basically that would be for us to lend and extend credit to them in order to get the property that they wanted. So we would see this in a lot, a lot, a lot of times. It's altered pay stubs and altered bank statement. Mm. And many people actually inflate those numbers. I've only seen one person ever actually make it appear as if they had less money. I don't know mm. why. 
do that? I have no idea. The only but, thing I can think of is maybe to qualify for a first time home buyers or some yeah. other benefit like that. Absolutely. Government right. programs, something. Yeah. Yeah. I've only saw that one time, but typically, yes, it's making it appear as if you have more money in the bank than you actually have, or mm. you make more money on your pay stub than you actually make. And one of my favorites, I think, was I was reviewing a bank statement one time and we had, let's say, three months of bank statements they provided to us. I'll just say January, February, March. Going through, I think one thing they think is that we don't actually review this information, which we do. Yeah. And they had the same exact charges, the same exact credits, the same exact debits every single month, January, February, March. The only thing they changed were the date. So I'm reviewing this thinking, you really spent on the eight, $8.96 of McDonald's. On the ninth, you went to Target and spent $29.88. Every month. (laughs) So on and so forth. Every single month for three months straight. So that was probably one of my most favorite when reviewing asset documents. With the fraud for property piece, and and it does sound like that was the majority of what you were working on. I sometimes get confused because I don't know mortgage fraud that well, but how you can identify the intention or does the intention matter, right? Because they're within e-commerce and banking fraud, we have terms like friendly fraud or what I prefer is first party fraud versus third party fraud, right? So what you would see as someone fudging their pay stubs and everything else, do you see that as first party or third party? Or do you only see third party when they're using someone else's identity? Or maybe you guys didn't think about that at all. And it was just, hey, you're trying to defraud our company. And so fraud is fraud. Yeah, I I don't believe we did anything kind of like that. It typically was, yeah, this is this is definitely fraud. This is definitely a, a misrepresentation on the borrower's part, and we're not going to give them what they right. <laughs> want or need. Now, sometimes we would fall into our underwriting teams would send us, you know, a loan to review, and sometimes they are honest mistakes made by, say, the payroll processing right. department. And if unless it's something blatantly obvious where we can say this is obviously fraud, then we're, we're not going to lend. But if it's something where we can save the loan, so to speak, and then that would just be getting clarification from a human resources department or something like that, we're going to go ahead and do everything we can in order to save it. But on those parts where it's malicious fraud, that's kind of just what, where we stop and say, yep, this is fraud. We're not going down this. Would you see a lot of them do it themselves or it would look like in that case, right, that where they just kind of copied their statement and used it for multiple months or they did that for themselves? Or did you also see fake employers and other pieces and bank stubs that may have come from fraud as a service or fraudster forums, whether that's in Telegram or the dark web, et cetera? I know Frank McKenna, one of the times I think when he came to talk about car loan fraud a few months ago was talking a lot about fake employers and, and pay stubs and that that was becoming a big issue in auto loans as well. And he had seen it when he was in mortgage fraud too. So he knew what it was and you don't have to have an exact percentage or anything, but I'm just curious if the majority of those you saw, it was like, oh, they kind of did it themselves and they're, ten- they're fudging it, but they really do work at that place or they really do this or that versus just buying fake pay stubs from a provider that's basically providing fraud as a service. Right. So we ran into both of those. I would say fraud as a service, you know, going out and purchasing that information, maybe 10, 15 percent of people would 
would right. do that. And, and and occasionally those are very good pay stubs a lot because that's somebody that's, they're paying for it. Sometimes they're not, but a lot of times you're like, okay, these people actually know what they're doing and I can, I still figured it out. But and then it would be people just doing it on their own that aren't sure because they think we just don't review that information. But another thing we actually ran into would be we did business through like wholesale, like brokers. Brokers would bring loans to us in order yeah. to lend and they are the ones dealing with the borrower. So the borrower sent the broker their information. Mm. Unfortunately, sometimes brokers can also fudge that information if they feel like somebody's not going to get through yeah. if they don't have money. So it can also come from that third party source as well. But it's you know, a couple of people that were in mortgages prior to 2008. And I remember asking questions like, well, what if they, especially because I knew, you know, the way they talk is like, well, we just kind of bumped up their pay because we know that they'll be making that in a couple of years or whatever the justification was. And I was like, but what if they don't? <laughs> or those adjustable rates, especially, right? Knowing that it would go up quite a bit after a few years. And my question to the people I knew was like, well, what if they don't make more money? Oh, well, they will, or they can refinance. Basically, I don't care as long as I get paid as a mortgage broker was essentially what I was hearing. <laughs> yep. So I, part of, yeah. Sorry, we got in a really bad situation from people doing that in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I know that it's cleaned up a lot, but there's still, whenever there's motivation there, whenever there's a large commission, and I deal with that with online companies that might have salespeople that might take a credit card charge over the phone or something like that, but they didn't actually explain what the person was buying cool. because they just wanted to get the sale or they'd say whatever they needed to, to get the sale. As soon as you take commission away, all of a sudden your chargebacks go down, right? But <laughs> it's different in the mortgage industry where there's not necessarily like a feedback loop in that way until it's too late. And now the mortgage is in collections and going through that process of foreclosure, which is just expensive for everyone. I don't know very much, actually. I didn't work on that side, but it's a very grueling and long process. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. That's why the prevention piece is so important. So you had also mentioned when we were talking about before the interview, like false gift giving and occupancy fraud and loan modification scams. Those were three things I wasn't as familiar with. And for people who haven't been in mortgage fraud or also a lot of these things are very common in, like I mentioned, car auto loans or any other kind of lending as well, whether it's business loans or consumer loans or anything like that. Yeah, that's definitely is becoming a very large problem. Occupancy fraud. We see that a lot of times when people are wanting to buy, you can have a second home or if they're wanting to buy an investment property. I've seen people that just purchased a home a year ago and said, oh, this is going to be my primary residence. And a lot has to do, goes into that is actually the percentage of, of your loan or right. you know, how the much interest rate every month in the yeah. interest. And people would say, oh, yeah, I just bought a home a year ago, but now I'm moving. And when in all reality, it's actually an investment property and mm. interest rates are much higher on interest properties than they are on a primary residence right. or a secondary residence. So that's that is kind of the motivation behind hmm. occupancy fraud for somebody. And actually, occupancy fraud is actually really hard to identify because if they lived in the house for a week or two weeks and then decided to put it on the market as an investment property, there's not very much we can do because they did at one time occupy mm. a primary residence. Right, so, right. And how do you know that they're actually 
living there. You know, actually my mother built a home in another state. So she was retiring from one state and moving to another state when she retired, but she built the home while she was still working in the state of Washington. And there were some things about her loan and her insurance as well that she had to fly to the other state and just stay there for a weekend every <laughs> month or so, so that she could still like prove that she was occupying the house. Otherwise she would have gotten the loan or something like that. <laughs> so similar. Yeah. yeah. I, I just hadn't thought of it before. It's like all these different types of ways that people try to get around the system. And it's something that I think fraud fighters of all kinds can relate and understand. And you start to get really used to knowing, oh, this is exactly what they're doing here. This is what they're trying to do there because you see it so much or and you've trained your eye and, and your gut to look for those things. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So gift giving fraud is actually definitely one that we we have seen a lot of. And I've seen many times kind of referring back to the process where we said the the quality control coordinators go back to people just during the, the audit process and people will come back and say, oh, I didn't give a gift of $20,000. It was just a loan. And they're actually signing an affidavit at the time they give a gift in order for someone to, to get a home saying, I certify this is a gift. There is no payment expected or implied to come back to me in order to provide this gift. So sometimes it's like people aren't really reading what they're signing, mm. which I can touch on that in, in a moment. We're talking about loan modification and forbearance scams. But yeah. People, but it's just case you're saying, right, if just for as an example or just a made up example, if I were to want to purchase a home and I needed $20,000 for the down payment, I, assuming that I had parents of means I could ask or friends or whatever I wanted to, felt comfortable asking, I might tell them, hey, I'll borrow 20000 and I'll pay you back. But telling the mortgage company, well, it was a gift. And the difference there is if it's a loan, then that's more money that you have to pay out that you might prioritize over paying your mortgage. Is that uh, Absolutely. Okay. So if that were an actual, yeah. it would be something where we would have to qualify that monthly payment into what you, we call your debt to income ratio mm. and in order for you to qualify for the loan. If you haven't, it would be kind of no different than if you went out and bought a $20,000 car and didn't tell us about it, which we mm. run into that all the time. By right. the <laughs> that happens quite frequently as well. You know, it'd be okay. Well, now you have a $20,000 debt we need to calculate. And then a lot of times people wouldn't qualify for the loan if you have that extra debt attached. Mm. So it's kind of a way that people try to get around the process and around the system. <laughs> And Do you feel like a parent ever? Just yeah. like, you know, are you sneaking out after curfew? Like, are you abiding by all the rules? Kind of like everyone's a fraudster until they're proven innocent. <laughs> right. I know that is something that me as prime fighters have to modify our thinking, right? Because I think it's good to think everyone's good until you prove me wrong. However, when you're looking at that smaller percentage of for you, it was applications for other people, it's transactions or whatever that risk piece is, you're looking at it as, okay, well, I know if they landed on my desk, there's probably something suspicious. So Yes, to your thinking, like you're probably a fraudster until you prove me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
But that's a good, I think that's a good mindset to have just whenever I answer the phone these days. My goodness, that's like a whole other thing, just scam calls and texts and everything else. And then I really wanted you to, to touch on the loan modification scams because it sounds like those are things that happen, especially during the pandemic. Might not be something that people know about, but I actually could see this either being modified and morphed to impact other lenders or actually maybe someone's family member or friend of a friend has fallen victim to this. Yes. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So you kind of mentioned when you said scam calls and things like yeah. that. So one thing that we started running into at our department would get a lot of emails and things like that from our servicing department. So your servicing department would be, if you have a problem with your mortgage, you're going to call them and get your questions answered. Mm -hmm. Kind of like customer service, sort of. Yeah. Absolutely. So we saw this major influx of spoofing happening, and I'm sure that you're familiar with that. But to clarify for the audience, so spoofing would be a scam where criminals would disguise their phone number in order to display or convince an automated system to make it appear as if that call is coming from a legitimate source when it in fact is not. Mm. So, you know, you pick up your call or your phone, caller ID says it's so-and-so mortgage company. Mm -hmm. They, they have some way to do it. I think it's through voiceover, internet, uh -huh. call system, something. And that happened a lot, all the time. We would get several emails every day saying, so-and-so got a call. It says us and they're demanding money and they're demanding all these things. So that's one thing that actually happens quite a bit and all the time. And that's actually yeah. really scary. Yeah. But people or borrowers would start getting phone calls that they legitimately believed were from our company thinking they can help me. And I can get out of this, so to speak, this mess that I'm in kind of so behind on my payments. I was just going to ask if the mess is that they're behind on their mortgage. And I know it, 
that especially because of the pandemic, at least in the U.S. and I think the U.K. and a few other countries had, I don't know if a moratorium is the right word, but they had the ability to defer your house payment, whether that was rent or mortgage for a certain amount of months. It didn't mean that it went away, but you didn't have to pay it. You wouldn't go into the foreclosure process for a certain number of months because understanding that the pandemic impacted a lot of people in different ways and impacted their income. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. So we would, they would go into what we call the COVID-19 forbearance. Mm, Forbearance. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) It's exactly that where still accrued, all the things like that still accrued. They just, I, I believe all credit reporting stop. So mm. if you look at your bill, it says you go $23,000, but you're not in foreclosure or anything like that. So it kind of halted that process. Right. And it's not being reported to your auto lending or right. any other rate on your, right. One thing actually that was, that is really scary, which I don't know a ton about this, but people or fraudsters can often use public notices. And this would be for someone that's not maybe in a COVID-19 forbearance. Right, right. But who's already in foreclosure process. They can use those lists of distressed borrowers or they can actually purchase those from other companies Mm -hmm. that have the notice of default list. So somebody that's 60, 90, 120 days behind. They can purchase those listings. And then what they do is they go back and they target people that are in these situations. We had people that would steal our company logo and made it appear as if the letter was actually coming from us, which mm. I get mail all the time that says, oh, we're working with your mortgage company to right. get you a rate. And then it's very small print at the bottom. It says that there are no even say who your mortgage company is. Right. right. Yeah. Right. They made this appear as if it was legitimately coming Ugh. from people. And people would call the phone numbers that were on those or on those forms and they would talk to people and people would then start to demand monies or they would say, okay, stop sending money to your lender. We're going <sighs> to, we're going to fix this for you. We're going to get you in a rescue plan, so to speak, in order to bring your loan current. Mm, and just then what pay I, us a percentage or something like that, right? Pay us instead. But the kicker was they would ask you for gift cards instead of money, instead of checks or money. Right, right. And not everybody thinks that that way. So some people's mind don't go on the defense. But when when you hear, okay, gift cards, I would automatically think that that's a problem. But unfortunately, I saw it happen where people sent us proof of going to Target Mm. or Walmart and spending $1,200 in gift cards. And and they thought by doing that, that would then forgive the back amount that they owed. And so now they're out that money and they still owe a large amount. That's They still owe the lender. They are, they are out of the money that they sent to the fraudster and they're still in the same place that they were previously. So the fraudsters typically say, oh, we can lower your payment by $400 a month and get you back in a good spot. And it's, it's almost goes back to that, that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But they did a really good job at convincing people about to do that. Another was a foreclosure rescue scam where people actually would kind of do the same thing. They would make it appear as if they can refinance your loan. Mm. So we can can bring your loan current. We can get you a better rate. We can lower your monthly payment. And all we need you to do is fill out this paperwork and we'll do the rest for you. And what they're counting on is they're counting on people not reading what they're signing. Mm. And, And then oftentimes they'll actually try to distract the person when they're signing documentation. And what they're actually signing is a deed transfer for their home. And they don't know. I've heard about that once or twice. Yeah. They'll go and they'll be filed with the county. And then once a deed transfer has been completed, 
then you're, you you're can be evicted from your home. Yeah, it's it technically- Oh my gosh. And you still probably <laughs> yeah. owe the mortgage company all the money for the house because the person you signed the deed over to wasn't taking over your mortgage, right? No, oh, actually a, a deed <clears throat> transfer can be filed for like $10 with the county, something like that. And you're still on the hook for the money and that person's not on the loan whatsoever, but now they're on deed wow. to the home. So it technically belongs to them. So absolutely, when you say people kind of being taken advantage of, especially during the pandemic, it's it's really sad, but it happens every day. And yeah, that's just not something that I was familiar with. And I think that when governments or entities are trying to calculate just how much money was lost due to COVID-19 fraud in general, that's not really something that's calculated, right? It's oh, more no. talking about the COVID relief funds from governments. And those are very major, but there's just a, a lot of different types of companies saw different fraud targeting them or their customers based on the type of company they were. And obviously mortgage was one of them. And you're right. It is so sad because the majority of people who are victimized by that are really don't have a lot of resources. And that's why they wanted to believe that if they paid $1,200 in, in gift cards to their mortgage company in quotation marks, that they would be current and out of it. And it would turn out that they'd be in an even worse situation. And that is definitely where our sense of justice gets fired up for sure as fraud fighters and just humans. Right. Absolutely. I agree. Okay. So switching gears. Yeah, I do. It's important to me to want to talk about just what you love about fraud fighting and, and what you learned about it. But and I really appreciate your willingness to talk about this next subject. It can often be something that can be hard to talk about, especially publicly. But you were recently laid off. Can, and I know that is happening to a lot of people, whether I think it should happen in fraud or not is a whole other story. But I know different types of businesses have different needs as well. So not totally trying to blast any specific employer. Just I've talked about it in the past where fraud doesn't go down the same way that customer service volume does or other things like that. So that's where I'm coming from. But there have been a lot of fraud fighters laid off recently. And so that's why I thought it'd be really good to talk about this because I think a lot of other people can relate to your story as well as learn from some of the things you've done because I've been really impressed. So first, can you tell us a little bit about how you felt when it happened and what you first did and then what led you to be able to kind of take action towards your your next chapter? Yeah. So feelings about when that first happened was definitely shock. Like I completely came out of left field. I I had no idea or never saw that coming. So that was that was scary. When you're with an employer over nine okay. years, you don't expect to just yeah you you've been loyal. So a lot of people you know kind of assume reciprocity in that way. Right. Absolutely. I definitely watched the market, the way the interest rates and everything kept mm-hmm. pulling up and. I knew that that within the mortgage business is a a big indicator that there could be potential layoffs happening. That's Mm. actually just kind of how the business happens. Yeah, there's going to be less loans being initiated. Right. Yep. And, but I worked on a very small team. There were just three of us. And so I I definitely, I knew there are so, so many applications and everything coming in that I just never saw it coming. So to be honest, it was very hard on my mental health. Actually, I I struggled for a good bit of time and I I still do now as a result of that. But I actually did everything backwards. And anyone that's listening, do not, please don't do what I did, (laughs) which I immediately hit the ground running that 
I have to find a job. I have to find a job. I have to find a job. And I lost my job many, many, many years ago when I was single and living on my own and barely had a penny to my name. And so every cent mattered. And I'm in a much different position now. You know, I'm I'm married. We have a a second additional income. We have a small nest egg in saving. So all is not lost and all. It's it's definitely a huge for us to be able to have that. But I wasn't thinking that way at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Fear I, is a yeah. really big emotion. And yeah. it takes over our brain. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking I have to find a job instead of really taking the time to process. And and I it felt almost as if going through the stages of grief. Yeah. It kind of really hit me in that way. I got really mad. I got really angry. I got really upset. The one thing that helped me was knowing that this was just a reduction in force. You know, it wasn't in any way performance based, mm-hmm. nothing like that. But that was good for my manager at the time to tell me that. But mm-hmm. it's just what happens in the business. So it took some time for me to realize that, okay, I need to stop because I was really just kind of running myself into the ground. And I kind of just had blinders on. I really only saw, okay, I have to get a new job and that what's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit at the kitchen table for 40 hours a week on the computer doing whatever I can. And it really hit me hard. So to the point where my husband was like, listen, I need you to sit on the couch, do whatever it is that you need to do in order to, to feel better and unwind because we have money in the bank. We're, we're blessed in that way, you know, so this isn't something that we need to go after immediately. Let's take the time to think about what you really want to do. Yeah. And that was actually the biggest kind of aha moment for me, because this is actually allowing me to think about what I really love about fraud and research companies that I really like and respect and the things that they're doing and go after a job from that direction. And so that's kind of what I did. And I started posting on LinkedIn. I know that's kind of how we kind of got linked together, but I started thinking, okay, I'm spending all this time sitting on the couch trying to relax. So what can I do in the meantime to start building up a network? And what can I do to start being connected with other fraud fighters and other people out there? And one thing I'm passionate about, is like fraud education and teaching other people the things that I know. And I kind of started to go at it from that angle where I love documentaries. I'm a huge documentary junkie. And, yeah. And watching those and kind of tying that as an educational piece on LinkedIn. So that's kind of the direction that I went. Yeah. And I've been really impressed by your tenacity and vulnerability recently. I mean, I think a lot of us see so many posts saying like I was laid off and that is absolutely is a good thing to do because it helps other people in your network know that you're available and other people want to help each other and all of that. So that's not a bad thing. And, And you did that as well. And I think that was caught my attention. But I think it's also been your consistency in posting relevant information to help be like give back to the to give something out to the industry or the platform and not just say hey help me help me but hey these are some things I've learned or this is what I've seen and and this might be helpful I always often find that when people are selfless that's when you get what you give is kind of a a mantra I have in, in my own mind and or in my own life and so when you give information or assistance or help to people then that will come back to you in some way and I I think that you weren't just focused on, I need a job, I need a job. You were, hey, what can I do to just provide a little bit of value here? The other thing I've noticed that I've really been encouraged by because LinkedIn, I think is one, I mean, it's really my main social media platform these days. I just cannot be on four or five of them like other people, but you know, you get to see what 
people in your network are commenting on and liking to do. And I've noticed that you have gone out of your way to comment on people's posts that you're commenting for reach when they're looking for a job or to help connect someone or something like that. And I just, I think that that's a really smart way to go because it also helps your name keep coming up in people's feeds because they see you supporting others. And that's not, I'm not saying that's the reason you're doing it. It's just an after effect. Absolutely not. I know it's not. <laughs> no, thank you. That, I appreciate that. I, I've always been one that I really just want to help people in any capacity, in any way that I can. Um, and kind of like you mentioned, you know, what you give, you get back tenfold. And but that certainly wasn't the expectation. I, no. I started seeing all these people that were just in the same boat. And it made me feel actually not as alone as I mm. felt that I was, and especially tons of people in the mortgage industry. So I, I knew and understand, kind of understood what they were falling through and felt their pain. But I started just seeing just tons and tons. I think I even saw one where a woman said, I've been doing this for five months. I'm going to be evicted in five days. What can I do? And I actually have started to kind of try to put out there all the things that I've been sitting at the kitchen table doing is learning what's the job environment or what's the what's it like now? What do people expect? What can I do to, to make my LinkedIn profile better, my resume better? And just tagging people. There was a, actually one recruiter that I, I found where I would tag her like she's a really good resource. Go and follow her. She can help you. And she actually responded to the person and said, I'll just say her name was Ashley. I, I don't remember her name, but right. Ashley, you're falling out of job searches. I just went and searched for you in LinkedIn recruiter and I can't find you. So wow. change these things on your profile. And maybe you'll start getting some hit. So it was very much just kind of that human aspect of wanting to connect with other people, but also doing what I've, I've kind of always done and just trying to help people where help was needed in any way that I could. Well, and to be fair, if you were doing it purely out of selfish motives, all the front fighters in your network would see right through that, right? They could have got out. <laughs> Very strong bullshit detectors. <laughs> so, and that's unfortunate for people that are often trying to sell fraud fighters things, but that's a whole other conversation and topic for another broadcast. But yep. we can see through it pretty quickly. But I think going out of survival mode and sometimes my husband has to take me and help me like kind of get out of all the things I need to do and, and the busyness and the survival mode and just say, hey, slow down. It's okay. My husband will often tell me to stop shooting myself because I sh say I should do this and I should do that. He actually just told me that last night. I heard that incorrectly. <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's kind of the point, right? So he says stop shooting yourself, but it yeah. does. Yes, it does sound a little similar to other things, which is why, yeah, why he says it because he's yep. very punny, <laughs> but it helps for the most part, right? Like Yep, you're right. I'm thinking of all the things I should do rather than living in the moment or taking a moment for myself. And I think we need that. And often it can give clarity. And then the other thing I want to highlight is even if you don't feel like you have a ton of time, right? Even if somebody doesn't have a second income and savings account and things like that, just taking even a couple hours to write out what did you love about your last job? What did you not love? What do you want to do next time? Because you can see this as an opportunity to do what you love. And when you do what you love, you love what you do. And then you're really good at it, right? So it's not just like selfish. No, you should do whatever you love. I'm going to go, I don't know, play with animals or play with puppies. Well, I mean, it, you know, it should be something that, you know, the benefit, you'll do your best and you'll be in the best mindset and clear mind and not have that weight of stress 
over you and constant feeling of I'm not happy or this isn't fulfilling or whatever it is. If you took that time rather than just look for a job, it will also often help you stand out in interviews once you're talking to hiring managers that, hey, I love doing this. I love doing the analysis. I love doing the investigations. I love doing the project management, the product management that will come through. That passion will come through and help you stand out. So, you know, it's not just, oh, happy feelings. Just take a minute. I honestly have to do it about once a quarter. I need to start being more proactive and doing it once a month before I feel like I need to. But I often will be like, okay, what are, where are my priorities at? And are they aligned with where I want to go and who I want to be? Whether that's in my work or in my life or whatever that is, because you can get caught up in the moment. So I think those are all great. And when it comes to just you know, using LinkedIn, as well as just being laid off, like what advice do you have for other fraud biters who have been, been laid off recently? And what have been some of the unexpected benefits of supporting others and educating your network on fraud schemes that you're familiar with? Definitely. So what I would give as advice would be the job searching experience is no longer just sitting back and submitting your application and waiting for them to call. That definitely is something I learned the hard way. Hitting the follow button can be tremendous in your search for a new career or a new avenue to go down. So what I did is I actually would go into LinkedIn and I would start looking at companies that caught my attention or that I was actively seeking at going after. And I would find people actually in the positions that I would either want to be in or a manager in those positions. And I'd actually would follow them. And then a lot of times what would come up is If they're posting about something interesting, you don't have to be connected with someone in order to comment on their post or like their post. And I actually would start kind of working my way through that way and just following some. And then you never know, maybe they'll post about a job or something like that. But also I would say don't discount an informational interview. There's a very, very, very large tech company that I actually almost got a job at several, several years ago. And that was by me reaching out to somebody and say, hey, I'm not going to ask you for a job. I just want to ask you about your experience working for this company. And what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And just getting information from people and building a relationship with them because oftentimes down the road, you never know, they can give your name out as a referral for a job. So those are things that just kind of, I think, being proactive in those ways and of course, utilizing LinkedIn for what it's for, connecting with other broad fighters. And that can be very beneficial as well. You know, I think that's really good advice because I think oftentimes people will, they might apply for the position and they might search for who the hiring manager is or someone on the team, but then they'll go to them with an ask, right? I want the job or what can I do to get a job or what can I do to get an interview or something like that? And instead of leading with what can you do for me, you're kind of waiting for a moment when there might be something you can do for them. They post about something and you can comment on it oh yeah, I saw that in my last job and this is what happened. Or you see them post another job that maybe you're not interested in, but you might know someone that might be, or you might be able to connect with them and you start to just kind of get on their radar. And that 
can be a slow play, but that's also why oftentimes, you know, it's so good to build a network, whether you've been laid off or not and, and all of those things. But I really like that style because, and I think a lot of those people do too, right? It's not just about, hey, give me a job. It, hey, I want to be helpful or yeah, you can follow them and not have to go through connecting and making them think, you know, or whatever it is. That's just a little less intrusive or, or formal. Yeah. And you can just create a lot of great information. It's like I have with other fraud fighters out there in LinkedIn. I probably learn something new every day that I yeah. know from somebody. So it's really good to to kind of have that in your wheelhouse. And, and just I think education is, is so important. Oh, so. well, you and I both are on that one. But <laughs> I mean, and I always tell people if they don't feel comfortable posting, it, it's just as valuable to comment. That's actually how I've gotten a couple of guests that are coming up soon that are kind of bigger names or, or bigger work for bigger companies or don't usually come on podcasts is I'll just comment on their posts and then I'll follow up and say, hey, I really liked that post about that. Was this something you'd be able to come on Fraudology or whatever it is? And so I think that engagement piece, it also just helps us feel connected, helps us feel less alone, especially when you know, you're not employed and don't have the same camaraderie with coworkers anymore. That, I mean, even though I own my own business, I am, I'm it, right? So it often is nice for me to have that camaraderie as well. And then what have been some of the, just kind of the unexpected benefits of supporting others and educating your network on fraud schemes that you, you're familiar with? I think definitely learning what I may not have had access to in the first place. I'm, I'm learning about all kinds of different fraud that I never even mm. knew was a thing. So I think knowledge is power actually. And just learning as much as you can. There was actually someone I interacted with the other day that I made a post about how your home can literally kind of be taken out from underneath you. Yeah. And and there was a little blurb I put in there about you can typically sign up with your county or for an alert if your name is recorded on on a a document. And Mm -hmm. someone that is actually built his own business and starting fraud education out there. He actually commented and said, I, I had no idea this was even a thing. So I'll teach the teacher. <laughs> so it's really just kind of leaning on other people and, and really just finding new information. I think that I, I really enjoy it a lot. Well, yeah. And that's why I love having guests on Fraudology once a week, because we all have different experiences that lend themselves to each other, whether it's just good information to understand, like, oh, it's good to know that that's out there, that that happens, or it helps someone do their current job better or make a change in their life that helps them. All those things. I just think there's always value in learning from each other, regardless of on the surface, how much it looks like there isn't in common. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. And so just looking at the next chapter for you, actually, first, before looking at that, what advice would you give to companies that are looking to hire fraud fighters right now? As someone who has gone through this process a few times, you've had some interviews, you've had you've gone through that process. What do you wish companies would do differently or think of? Yeah, I think focusing, which they may already do this, but focusing a lot on transferable skill. You know, um, I may have worked in the mortgage industry for almost 10 years, but it's still considered a financial institution. I mean, we lent lent money to people. Yeah, a lot of money. Absolutely. I would say just because I I may not have the background in that particular area doesn't mean that I'm not maybe not knowledgeable or I can still succeed in, in another area of fraud somewhere else because I'm familiar with it. So I think, yeah, focusing on those transferable skills and, and where, where those can lead you. 
And we covered this just a minute ago, but is there any other advice that you have for, you know, other people that are in your shoes as they're going through this process as well? I would say probably one of the same things. Focus on what transferable skills you can take to your to your new job, but also quantifiable skills is actually something that I wish I would have known about long ago. Mm -hmm. And I keep I keep reading how important recruiters are saying quantifiable results are, which I can't go back and do that now. I know that I helped save my previous company, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars in bad loans. Getting an actual number would have been great for me to be able to put down on a resume that I just throwing this out there. I, I don't know yeah, what yeah. it was, but I helped save $8.5 million in vet, you know, in, right. in bad lending over the course of 16 months or whatever it was. So focusing on that, if you can, I think mm-hmm. and I learned this the hard way too, is always be updating your resume. I think I saw one post on LinkedIn of someone said, okay, once a month, I'm going to go in, I'm going to update my resume. And so it's ready to go. Even though I may be seriously happy at the company that I'm yeah. in, but you just never know what could happen to you. So I always updating that. And then kind of touching on what you said earlier, the importance of building a network and mm-hmm. keeping that going. I might go into a company that I'm really happy with, but I have met so many great people on LinkedIn and get so much valuable information all the time that I definitely plan on keeping keeping this momentum going even after I find another job. Which I think is amazing. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of networking because it has had such a big impact in my career as well as other people's that I've known and, and just so many people I can't even count. But doing it in the way that feels most you know authentic to you, I think is important. And I have had a few people who kind of fell off the planet me like several years ago and totally fine life happens but then when they do reach out it's hey can we talk for 30 minutes and I'm like ah, I've got a full schedule and, and I'm thinking oh you probably got laid off and usually that's the case right you know and, and that's not to say that everyone has to keep in touch with me because honestly <laughs> my inbox can't handle it but I just mean in general like with other people or just yeah not just thinking about getting to know other people in your industry when you have a need right but how can you get involved in conferences or educational organizations or be on committees or be whatever that is that feels most comfortable to you I think that's really good so so I should have known, of course, I always go longer than I plan to, but something I've realized throughout my own career, and I think we kind of talked about it just a few months ago, is that, you know, it doesn't make sense to just just look for a J-O-B, right? Like just a job. Now, granted, given in some people's situations, that may be necessary. You may need to get a part-time job or be a gig worker or something like that while you are looking for the right job for you. We do our best and bring our best selves to work when we're doing something that we love. And there are so many different types of roles and companies that need great anti-fraud professionals, you know, from financial institutions that do lending and other different, you know, channels within banks to e-commerce and fintech. And then there's all different types of fintech. And then within the type of company, there's different types of roles, right? Post-fraud investigations, product management, fraud prevention, underwriting and KYC, like doing analysis work. What is that thing that lights you up? What is your zone of genius that when you look for a new, when you're looking for a new role that you're hoping to be in a position to do most of the time? Absolutely. I think what really gets me excited and happy is doing actual fraud investigations and and getting in there and doing the research. I really like actually research 
Yeah. And really passionate about fraud prevention and fraud education as well. So I something in that wheelhouse in order to improve processes and things like that would really be something I'd be excited about. I have no doubt that you're going to find that, whether it's before this episode comes out or after. I'm not sure, but I think those of us with passion can stand out, like I said before, and it's very clear that you found your passion and your niche by accident, but you choose to stay in this industry on purpose. And I'm really excited to see what's next for you. I'm always excited when I see people who, especially those that were caught off guard and laid off or found out that their position was redundant or whatever, and they find a new job. I always get excited for them. But especially when to know a little bit more about the person and their journey to get that role. So I know in your case, I will be so excited (laughs) when it happens. Meredith, this has been such a great conversation. And I really hope it inspires other fraud fighters to make the best out of the situation they're in and maybe put themselves out there a little bit more. And I just really appreciate your vulnerability and your positivity during this chapter of your career, because I know it's not easy. But like I said, I have no doubt that this chapter won't last too long. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end our conversation today? I want to leave you with this. First, thank you. I, I really appreciate everything. I, it's greater than you know. Thank oh, you. you're so welcome. I want to leave you with this. If you've been laid off or if not, you can take this advice, but even the best tacos fall apart and they are still amazing. So even if you're you're falling (laughs) apart, you're falling apart like I was. Sometimes I still feel like I am. You're still amazing and you can go and get them because you'll get what it is that you're looking at. Aw, I love that. I love the humor and the positivity. And then (laughs) my eyes tear up a little bit just out of empathy. But also that phrase can apply to all of us in different ways. So even those of us that are employed or have income coming in, we still fall apart. But you're right. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with us and still be amazing and pick yourself up and move forward the best you can. And that positivity will lead you somewhere. So thank you again for your time and just sharing your story and some of your experiences, both in fraud as well as a fraud fighter. Yeah, I appreciate it. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.